All right, now take your Bible and open up to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. Verse 24. And God's word says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those, shall hear, shall, uh, those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. He gave him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth, those who did good things to a resurrection of life and those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. And I'll stop right there. So we come back here this morning to this portion of Scripture here in the Gospel of John, and we continue to look at one of the most magnificent, profound uh, portions of Scripture anywhere in the text of the New Testament, but most certainly here in the book of John. It's a lengthy discourse. Again, it starts up in verse 17 and goes all the way down to verse 47 where Jesus, from his own mouth, is declaring his deity. Jesus unequivocally claimed equality with God. And that's either a true statement or it's a false statement. There's no in-between. It's a dramatically bold claim that's either true or false, and everyone has to make a decision. You, you can't remain neutral when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ. And we talked about that a lot last time that the most important question that you or anyone else could ever answer is, who do you think Jesus is? And the answer to that question has profound effects on the way that you live your life and a profound effects uh, on, what, uh, on, on your eternal destiny. That determines your eternal destiny. Now, in the context of here, the sermon, really, if you will, that Jesus is giving, uh, this, uh, what he is saying here really is an interpretation of the healing of the, of the impotent man, the man that was laying there by the pool of uh, Bethesda. Uh, you remember that man was 38 years unable to walk, unable to be healed by his own power, until the merciful Christ comes by and heals him in a moment, completely and uh, instantaneously. And as a result of that healing, Jesus tells that man to take up his bed and begin to walk. Uh, this man who was made well does that very thing, and he was carrying his bed when some of the Jewish religious leaders uh, saw him and confronted him that he was breaking their Sabbath law. Again, in the context of the story, there's no concern for the man. There's no uh, uh, rejoicing over his lifelong ailment being taken care of, only anger because he is breaking one of their rules. Now, the man has no idea who's healed him uh, he has, uh, uh, or who has commanded him to take up his uh, pallet and walk. And Jesus comes and he finds this man in the temple and tells him to sin no more in order that nothing worse befall him. So instead of thanking uh, the Lord Jesus for uh, his healing, instead of demonstrating gratitude, this man, uh, in actuality, uh, turns Jesus over to those who hate him, those who are trying to persecute him, uh, the Jewish religious leaders. Verse 15 says, The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Verse 16, For this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now we saw last time in our study that Jesus vindicates himself in verses 17 to 23 because, again, from his own mouth comes the reality of who he is why he is indeed not guilty of breaking the Sabbath, and he wasn't breaking God's Sabbath anyway, but he was breaking their rules. But he's trying to tell them why he's not guilty of breaking the Sabbath, and the reason is because he gives forth six affirmations that proves that he is none other than God come in the flesh. 
Now, again, remember the Jewish religious leaders, they hate Jesus. They see him as an apostate, an outcast, someone who's possessed, uh, possessed by demons. They see him as someone who's insane, someone who's a bastard child, someone who's illegitimate. They claim that he does what he does in his miraculous healings by the power of hell itself. And again, they hate him. They persecute him, and they consider him the utmost blasphemer. And what Jesus does is he just keeps pressing forward the issue. Instead of recalling in horror uh, that perhaps he was misunderstood, that he was a man who's claiming to be God, he double downs on the issue and says, no, I am God. He repeatedly declares with no uncertain terms the reality of the fact that he is God come in the flesh. Not just a religious leader. Not a good moral man. Not a teacher. Not a philosopher. God incarnate. And repeatedly, he makes himself equal to God. And again, that claim is either true or it's false. There's no middle ground with a statement like that. Again, if the statement is false, then you can forget him safely because either he's a blasphemer, someone who's tremendously wicked, or he's crazy. He's insane. However, if the statement is true, as he claimed it to be, then you must yield your life to him, you must fall down before him, and you must worship him. Serve him faithfully, because again, your life and your eternal destiny uh, depends upon your relationship to him. Now, in the text that I just read this morning, there's a lot. And, and there's no way possible we can get through all of it in one morning. There's this absolute profound truth that Jesus just keeps piling on top of each other. Uh, profound truths as he speaks to the reality of the fact that he is God come as a man. Now, by way of review, I'm just going to give you the headings because, again, it was pretty intense last week and all this stuff. I'm just going to give you the headings, six statements, and you can go back and read it on your own at some point or listen to last week's sermon if you happen to miss it. But six statements of facts that Jesus makes concerning that he is equal with God. He claimed that he was equal with God in person and nature. Remember that person and nature, verses 17 and 18. Jesus claimed that he was equal with God in his works. Again, verse 17 and verse 19. He was equal to God in love, verse 20, equal to God in his power and sovereignty, verse 21, equal to God in judgment, verse 22. Therefore, because all those things are true, Jesus claimed that he was equal to God in honor and worship, verse 23. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Now, in our text before us this morning, Jesus continues to make these kind of amazing claims. And again, he's God come in the flesh. And then he makes the claim that there are only two categories of people in the world. Those who have eternal life that he gives and those who are spiritually dead who are under divine judgment. That's verse 24. And then he declares that every person who has ever lived on the planet is going to experience resurrection. Every person on the planet, when their physical bodies cease to work, or those whose bodies have already ceased to work, one day are going to be raised from the dead, literally, physically, both the godly and the ungodly. And Jesus says there's going to be a resurrection of life and there's going to be a resurrection of judgment. And then Jesus claims that he has the power not to only to impart spiritual life to a dead sinner, but he has that very power to raise everybody up. That's what he says. Now that's a pretty bold claim to make if you don't have that kind of power or ability. He makes that claim. Again, he says that everyone who's ever lived throughout all of human history... He himself has the power to raise them up, and he himself has the power to judge them for all eternity. So again, these are mind-boggling claims, profound claims, astonishing claims. Again, if untrue, then Jesus is at the very best insane. 
perhaps demonically evil, perhaps, or however, if his claims are true, then every man, every woman would do well to bow their knee before him in repentance and call out to him for mercy before it's too late. Because the truth is, listen, one out of one people die. The world is absolutely in panic over this virus because they fear death. When the reality is one out of one people die, and that statistic has not changed before COVID, it will not change after COVID, it is a reality of life in a fallen world. Death is a reality. It will come for each one of us unless the Lord should come and take us by way of the rapture. Therefore, every person needs to be concerned and prepared for what lies in front of them, what lies in front of all of us. And again, the issues with these facts and claims that Jesus is making uh, is, are they true? That's the issue. The claims that Jesus is making is, are they true? Not, Not, do you believe they're true? But are his claims true? Is he who he claims to be? And if so, you better make sure that you're right with God through this person of Jesus Christ before it's too late. Because if Jesus has the power to impart eternal life, he has the power also to judge all people and the power to raise all of the dead. If he has that power, you better make sure that you're right with God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and come to him by faith alone because, again, death's coming for every one of us. Doesn't matter if it's coming by COVID, doesn't matter if it's coming by cancer or a car or a truck or whatever, a heart attack. Life in a fallen world, one out of one people face death, and we better be ready for it. Now, again, the scripture this morning is just an amazing amount of truth, profound. It's a great message. It's a lengthy presentation. We're only going to get part of it, part way through it, a lengthy presentation of the deity of Christ. Uh, and, and again, in the context, we understand the Jewish religious leaders are completely rejected him. They see him as a false teacher. They see him as a deceiver. Uh, Again, they see the miraculous power that he does, but again, they claim that he does what he does by the power of hell itself. So they see him again as the ultimate blasphemer. They reject him in total. Because he claims that everything he does, he does the same way that God his Father does. Again, he makes himself equal with God. They reject him. They persecute him. Instead of, uh, again, backing away from those claims, he just keeps pushing it forward. Doesn't go to the right, doesn't go to the left, doesn't get into some discussion about the Sabbath. He just pushes it forward, forcing them to make a decision. Now, back in verses 21 and 22, Jesus makes this most astonishing claim. Again, that he has the ultimate power and authority. He has the power of life and the power to judge. Look back at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. So he is claiming very clearly that he is the one who brings people into existence. And he is the one who determines their eternal destinies, their eternal existence. Again, he is claiming to be God of very God. He is claiming that he has the ultimate power to give life. Now we know that God the Father gives life. Paul and Mars Hill talked about the God who gives life and breath to all God in whom we live and move and have our existence and have our being. And Jesus is claiming that same power. You'll remember John chapter 1, which said concerning the Word, who is Christ himself, nothing was made that wasn't made because by him or because of him, in him there was life. 
Again, nothing was made that wasn't made by him because in him was life. That's ultimate power. That's the ultimate power that God himself possesses. Underived, uncaused life. And Jesus and John in that text claiming that Jesus is that person. He has the power to give life. And as you read the Gospel of John, the topic of life is repeated numerous times. Again, he, John, speaks that Jesus is the source of life. John chapter 1, I just read it, in him was life. John chapter 3, remember the discussion with Nicodemus? It was a discussion about life. You have to be born again. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Verse 36 of that chapter, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He does not obey the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. The discussion with the woman at the well in chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, was a discussion about life. Come to the water of life. Drink from this water that will give you life everlasting. So the theme of life occurs over and over again. 39 verses, 47 times the word life is used in John. You see it in John chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 8, chapter 10. Chapter 10, verse 27, my sheep, Jesus says, my sheep, sheep hear my voice. I know them, they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish, for no one snatches them out of my hand. Chapter 11, chapter 12, chapter 13, chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 17, and then finally in chapter 20, verse 30. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So one of the major purposes for John writing, one of the major reasons for Christ coming to the earth is that men might enter into life. Because we're all under the condemnation of death. He wants men to enter into life, life of God. So Jesus is talking about that life in verse 24. And then he's going to talk about the resurrection again in verses 25 to 29. And he says there's two types of resurrection. One's spiritual and one's physical. One is to eternal life and one is to eternal damnation. But before we get to that, again, I want to look at verse 24. I want to go a little bit deeper here. I've told you numerous times, there's only two types of people in the world, and the text says it right in front of us. Only two types of people. There's those who are spiritually dead and those who have uh, eternal life. So Jesus says that very thing here, verse 24, there is no in-between category. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Now it's interesting here in verse 24 because Jesus says the mark that distinguishes the two groups, those who are spiritually dead and those who have eternal life, those who have eternal life are the ones who have heard Jesus' word. They believe uh, the one who sent him. While those who have not spiritual life, while those who are spiritually dead, have not heard or not believed. And of course, in the context, Jesus' word there stands for his entire message. His teaching, the fact that he's the Son of God, the fact that he is the Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world, the Savior, etc., and so forth. So when Jesus refers to hearing, or he who hears my word... It's much more than just hearing the sound of his voice because the religious leaders heard the sound of his voice, but they rejected him, right? They rejected him. They rejected him. They didn't submit themselves to what he was saying. In spite of the fact that they had witnessed the miraculous power of Christ over and over again, they again attested his power to Satan himself. Therefore, they rejected the word of Christ. But just as I read just a few moments ago, back in John chapter 10, 
contrasted the, uh, contrast that with the unbelieving Jews, Christ says, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So to hear in the context uh, of what Jesus is saying is to hear with obedience, to hear with faith, to, to believe who Jesus is, what he says, and then to submit your life to him, your complete life to him in, in total, to submit yourself to his lordship. So again, he starts this verse 24 off with these words, truly, truly. Again, remember I told you when Jesus uses this statement, uh, he's trying to underscore the significance of what he's about to say. Truly, truly, verily, verily, amen, amen, depending on the version of the I say to you that he who hears my word, listen, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. It's present tense, not future. It's present tense. Has eternal life and does not come into judgment, has, but has passed out of death into life. Now, this is a, just a phenomenal verse. And most of the time when this section of Scripture is preached, it, and especially verse 24, it's preached evangelistically in the sense that if you believe him who sent me, then you will have, future tense, eternal life. Now, that's true in, in one sense, but in the context, that's not what Jesus is saying. In the context. He's not saying that a person must first hear the word of Christ and believe, and then as a result of his believing, come into the possession of eternal life. That's not what he's saying in the context. Because verse 24 comes right in the middle of the great discourse that he is giving on the fact that he is God, God come in the flesh. And the point that Jesus is making is that the one who possesses divine life does so because God himself has acted that eternal life is not a reward for believing. In fact, it's the other way around, that a man believes because God has placed life within him to begin with. That's what he's saying. The point that Jesus is making, I'll say it again, the point that Jesus is making is that the one who possesses divine life does so because God has first acted. Eternal life is not a reward for believing. In fact, it's the other way around. The man believes because God has placed life within him to begin with. And now that's tremendously an important uh, concept, a tremendously important statement. Because again, it's pointing to the deity of Christ and the power of God himself to give life. Now we understand from the Bible that natural man, dead in trespasses and sins. Sin is so dark in the mind of every person born in the world, uh, excluding obviously the person of Jesus. Uh, the, the light has come in the world and men can't see it, right? They don't know him. They sit in darkness. They're dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, theologians call our uh, condition radical depravity uh, radical not uh, crazy like militant but radical meaning to the core uh, sinful depraved to the core and, and our depravity causes us spiritual blindness that's what jesus told nicodemus he said unless one john 3 and 3 unless one is born again born from above remember that's what that statement it means born from above he cannot see the kingdom of god it's a statement of ability not permission can't he can't see it Unless he's born from above, he can't see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because a natural man is dead in trespasses and sins. And dead things, listen, it's really profound. You might want to write it down, put it on a t-shirt. Uh, dead things can't understand anything. Dead things can't respond. Dead things can't respond to the things of God. Because depravity has put them in a position where they are dead. Depravity has created enmity between God the Father and uh, uh, between Jesus and, and God the Father and mankind. There's a spiritual hatred towards God, which results in judgment. 
This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come into light, lest his deeds should be exposed. John three nineteen and 20. So man's hatred, his blindness, and man's hatred of both God and Christ take both the form of active rebellion and passive indifference to the person of Christ. Unbelieving man abhors Christ. Unbelieving man is not concerned with Christ. No concern for him. Now, unbelieving man doesn't want to see his sin exposed, his evil exposed, because he loves the darkness, which creates defiance on a spiritual level against God and creates even more unbelief. That's why John, Jesus told us again in John 3 and uh, 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he does not believe the name of the only begotten Son of God. So again, if you're hoping to accrue good points with God, keep a good record with God, do more good things than bad things, and maybe you'll make your way into heaven, I can tell you you're wasting your time because God doesn't keep that kind of category, doesn't keep that kind of a record. The warning of the scripture is that if you're apart from Christ, that you are judged dead already, judged guilty already. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. That's the spiritually dead man. That's the man apart from Christ. Again, he's like a corpse. He can't do anything. He can't do anything to cause uh, his own salvation or contribute to his own salvation. He can't do anything to remove himself from this position of spiritual deadness and separation from God. Spiritual men can't, or spiritually dead men can't even do anything to place their belief in Jesus as the Savior. They can't because they're dead. They can't do anything without the gracious work of God, without the intervening work of God, the Holy Spirit. John 6 and 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. And again, the idea behind the word draws in John 6, 44 is like dragging a dead corpse. Right? Nobody can come unless God draws him. So here in verse 24, when Jesus says, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him, who ha, uh, whom uh, believes him who he sent has eternal life. Again, the present tense indicates that the one who believes, listen, does this because God himself has given him life so that he can believe. The life that he has to believe is the activity of God. So again, verse 24 is not so much an evangelistic call. It's again another demonstration in the context of the story of the deity of Christ, that possession of divine life begins with God's action rather than men because men are dead. It is another demonstration of Christ's power, another demonstration of God's tremendous love, compassion, and mercy for men. Eternal life is not a reward for believing. It's the other way around. Life comes first to the person, then belief afterwards. The theologians used to say this, and it really is another way of saying it. Regeneration precedes faith. Regeneration precedes faith. You know, pick whatever analogy you want. Your dead dog in the backyard can't go fetch that stick for you. He doesn't have that ability. Oh, but he used to. I know, but he's dead. He doesn't have that ability. Dead men can't raise themselves from the dead on a physical level or on a spiritual level. Again, it's just pointing to the mercy of God, the compassion of God, that he sent his son into the world. He commands us to believe, which we can't do, but he gives us the ability to believe because of his tremendous love. And if you believe, then you're a recipient of that tremendous love. Again, it's a statement of God's sovereignty, a statement of, of, the, of, the, of God's sovereignty in the matter of salvation. I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, 
And the reason they have eternal life, Jesus Christ says, is because I gave it to you. I gave it to them. That's what he's saying. Again, look at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. He's talking about spiritual life. He's talking about being born from above. He's talking about being born again. So again, verse 24 is just an utterly amazing statement. But again, a lot of times it's misunderstood in the context. It's emphasizing Jesus and his sovereignty over the matter of salvation. The theologians would call this the doctrine of election. It's the doctrine of election. That's what's going on here. We're saved and we come to life because God chooses to save us. God chooses to bring us to life. God gets the glory for our salvation, not us. So therefore we stand before him and fall in praise and thank him for his tremendous mercy. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has present tense, a present reality, the gift of God's regenerating grace. And therefore does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. So again, eternal life is a present possession because of the grace of God for the one who believes, the one who hears his voice, who hears God's voice. Uh, and the reason that one, God's, the one hears God's voice and believes is because of God's kindness. He has awakened, uh, awakened you from the dead. He's given you regenerating grace. So, so that, that present possession of what God has done and the, the gifts he's given to us is meant to be a tremendous encouragement to us. A tremendous encouragement, a great point of assurance. Because he who believes has eternal life. Therefore, he does not come under judgment. Romans 8, we're familiar with it. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So again, the person who's regenerated is regenerated by God's kindness. He's moved from the realm of spiritual death to spiritual life. And again, this is what God has done. God has given this gift through Christ to those whom he awakens from the dead as eternal life, again, is a gift of God. But eternal life is eternal life. It's not temporary life. What does that mean? It means it's a gift that can never be lost. It's a gift that can never be lost. Did I tell you already this is a point of encouragement? A point of assurance? James Boyce, good statement. He says, if eternal life can be lost, then it's not eternal. Pretty simple. If eternal life can be lost, then it's not eternal. If it can be taken from us, it's not eternal. If we can renounce it so that it no longer belongs to us, it's not eternal. Is God changeable? Question mark. Certainly not. Then his gifts cannot be withdrawn. The Bible says the gifts in his call are irrevocable. Romans 11, verse 29, a great statement. Eternal life is eternal. So again, God wants those who believe upon Christ to have assurance that there, again, is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life, does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. And the life that he's talking about there is eternal life. Now, the assurance of our salvation is not based on our feeling. It's based on fact. It's based on what God says. It's based on the word of God. It's based on the promise of Christ. That those who have, those who believe have eternal life. And they will never face his judgment. Because he is the one who's given to them that life. And again, that underscores the entire discussion here. And he, or he underscores the entire discussion by saying, truly, truly. Listen up. Sit in your chair. Sit upright. Right? Stop slouching. Listen, listen to what I'm saying. Truly, truly, this is reality. And that's why he says what he does. This is the word of God. One uh, commentator had this uh, illustration. He said, a man once came to the famous evangelist D.L. Moody and said that he was worried because he didn't feel safe. 
Moody asked him, was Noah safe, safe in the issue of his salvation? Uh, was Noah safe in the ark? Certainly he was, the man replied. Well, what made him safe, his feeling or the ark? And the commentator says, our salvation doesn't rest on our feeling, but on Christ our Savior. If we are in him, we are secure and protected from the storm of judgment that is coming on the world. Our feelings rest on the absolute truthful promises of Jesus, end quote. That's a great statement. If we are in him, we are secure, protected from the storm of judgment that is coming upon the world. Have you noticed that the uh, lake is getting a little bit rough these days? Have you noticed that the waters are uh, turning up? Things are becoming a little bit uh, uh, uneasy? There's a wrath coming upon the world for its unbelief, but there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. On one sense, I don't know how you want to put it in your mind. I know that you sit down and you watch your uh, uh, Ohio State Buckeyes. Sorry for what happened a couple of weeks ago. But you sit and watch them, and you get so caught up into it, you think you're actually there, a part of it. You're not on the field. You're not sweating. You're not guy guys stepping on you and running into you and hurting you and grass in your face, and right? You think you're a part of it, but you're actually watching from a distance. You get caught up into it, people jumping up and down, screaming, crying, whatever the situation may bring. In a certain sense, that's us as sojourners, travelers in the world. This is not our home. We're a part of it. We're kind of caught up in it, but it's not about us. Okay, no matter what happens with the Buckeyes, we can turn the channel off and go to bed at night because there's one sovereign who rules and reigns, and he's carrying everything out according to his purposes. There's nothing out of control in his kingdom. It's the kingdom of darkness. It's the kingdom of chaos. It's the prince of the power of the air that speaks lies everywhere. And that's why the lies just continue to grow. You tell one, you've got to tell three to cover it up. And it just gets, and our heads go crazy. We go, this makes no sense. It's completely irrational, what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing. And you're right, it does make no sense because it's founded in darkness, not in truth. We find our lives, we find our lives in truth. We, we live on the word of God. I mean, did we not sing about that when things get difficult in the world? We're going to stand, take our stand on the word of God? I mean, I don't know, do we sing stuff we believe or we just sing it because a guy gets up and says, you've got to sing now. I hope we th- sing things because we believe it. And we're expressing the reality of our heart. We believe the word of God. Was Noah safe in the ark? Of course he was. Not because he felt like he was. I'm sure there was times he didn't. He was safe in the ark because God told him to get in the boat. He told him how to build it. Get in the ark. I'll take care of you. Our salvation doesn't rest on our feelings, but on Christ, our Savior. If we are in him, we are secure, protected from the storm of judgment that is coming in the world. Our feelings rest on the absolute truthful promises of Jesus himself. Right? That's a tremendous help, I think. So again, verse 24, people have taken it to be an invitation, and I kind of get that, uh, a call to, to hear the words of Christ and believe, but really it's a statement of fact. This is what Jesus is saying in the context of he's telling everybody that he's God come in the flesh. This is what he has done. He's the one who makes people spiritually alive. Well, I get all, all, all messed up, this election thing. I just Every time you talk about it, Pastor, it just drives me crazy. How do you know if you're one of the elect? Okay, we'll read it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and doesn't come under judgment, right? So if you hear the word of God, you believe, then you're one of the elect, not because of what you did, but what God has done, right? So how do you know you're one of the elect? Just believe what God says. 
right? Let God work all those theological things out at some other point, but that's the reality of the Word of God, right? It's tremendous truth. Verse 24, couldn't pass it, couldn't pass over it just with a little glimpse we gave it last time. Now going on here, verses 25 and 26, again, speaking to the power of Christ, uh, his inherent lordship uh, over the grave, right? This is what these verses are talking about. Christ is Lord over the grave. He's making a claim even before his own personal resurrection that he has the power to raise the dead. So these verses begin to discuss the resurrection, the two resurrections in our text. Verses 25 and through 29, uh, 25 through 29, there's a spiritual, spiritual resurrection in verses 25, 26. Then there's a physical resurrection in 27 through 29. So Jesus again begins with the reality of the spiritual regeneration, or so begins with the reality of spiritual regeneration, or again, the fact that he is the one who has power to impart spiritual life to spiritually dead people. Now, again, just put yourself in the context of the story. Put yourself in the discussion. Put yourself standing next to the Pharisees who are listening to all this kind of stuff, the religious leaders. They must have thought Jesus was insane. They must have thought he'd lost his mind. Jesus claims he has the power to raise people from the dead. Now, they don't understand the whole context. I get that. And again, at the moment that Jesus is performing many miracles and has performed a number of them up to this point, in the history of the story, uh, chronology of the story, he's not yet raised anybody from the dead physically. He's going to do it when he raises the son of the widow in Luke 7. He's going to do it again when he raises Jairus' daughter in uh, Luke 8. And he's going to do it, uh, most amazingly, when he raises Lazarus from the dead in John 11. So he demonstrates the fact that he has the power of the physical realm. Again, he calls Lazarus forth. He commands a dead man to come to life. And he imparts to him the physical ability, the supernatural physical ability, for this dead man to hear. Because dead things can't. That's why your dog can't go fetch you that bone anymore. He doesn't have the ability. He's dead. But God gives, Christ gives this man, Lazarus, the ability to hear the call. And then the ability to obey the call. And the ability, the power to raise up physically from the grave. Now that's truth. On a physical lamp level, Jesus raised Lazarus physically. So, if Jesus has that power over the physical realm, therefore he has that same power over the spiritual realm. That's what he's talking about. He's speaking about his power to raise up those who are spiritually dead to see that they receive eternal life, that they come from death to life, that they come from uh, the spiritual dead realm to the spiritual life realm, to the life uh, to the realm of eternal life. And again, Jesus begins with this affirmation of certainty. And he, get, he does it to, uh, uh, to point out the importance of what he says. It's interesting. I should look at your Bible and see just on, on a big context here how, when he says truly, 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 truly. He's setting it again here, verse uh, 25. So he's calling our attention to it. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear his voice or those who hear shall live. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. The phraseology speaks to a present reality. Now is. There's something coming. An hour is coming, but now is. Now, the more that's coming, obviously, is the cross, the physical resurrection, his ascension, etc., the coming of the Holy Spirit, all those kind of things. But now he is speaking to the reality that he, standing right there in their presence, has the power to give spiritual life to the spiritual dead. Truly, truly... I say to you, an hour is coming, and now is, when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear it shall live. Right? Jesus is saying that spiritual regeneration, redemption have come. The saving work of God the Holy Spirit through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is beginning to make people a spiritually alive. 
now is, right? It's exactly what Paul says of us in Ephesians 2. We were dead in trespasses and sins, right? Past tense. But God has made us alive together with Christ, present tense. He's raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, right? Ephesians 2. And the New Testament often speaks of unbelievers as those who are once spiritually dead. Paul in Romans 6.13, present yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead. That's who you used to be. You were dead, but now you're alive from the dead. Colossians 2.13, when you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven all our transgressions. 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death to life because we love the brethren. He does not love abides in death. So John says, look, salvation is passing out of death unto life. It shows itself in how we treat each other in the body of Christ. So spiritual death. Uh, one theologian, 18th, 19th century theologian, Scottish commentator, John Eady says this. He says, spiritual death implies insensibility. The dead, which are insusceptible as their kindred clay, can neither be wooed or won back to existence. The beauties of holiness do not attract a man in his spiritual insensibility, nor do the miseries of hell deter him. God's love, Christ's sufferings, earnest conjurations by all is tender and all that is terrible do not affect him. It implies inability. The corpse cannot raise itself from the tomb and come back to the scene and society of the living word world inability characterizes fallen man so he says look you know you you can do whatever you want you can jump up and down and you can threaten people with hell you can tell them of the goodness of god his love you can do anything you want but a spiritually dead individual cannot respond to that now i'm not saying don't declare the gospel i'm saying i would argue we probably ought to declare the gospel a little bit more and stop arguing with people thinking that we can argue dead people into the kingdom because my argument's better than you. And let me just show you 17 apologetic truths that if you just believe these things, then you too can have eternal life. That's nonsense. Apologetics are for Christians. We are called to declare the gospel because the power of God is found in the gospel. That's where the power of life is found. In the declaration of the death, burial, resurrection, right? The incarnation, the death, burial, and resurrection of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. God takes that truth and God awakens the dead. Corpses can't raise themselves. Corpses can't be wooed or won back into existence. You can love your neighbor who doesn't believe in the gospel, and you should, but at some point, you better get the gospel in there at some point. Or your friendship evangelism is going to do nothing except have him have a friend as he goes to hell. Because it's the gospel, it's the power of God unto salvation. And that's why Paul said, I'm not a shame of the gospel i realize what it is it's god's power we need to declare god's power we need to declare the truth and let god does do what he does in the hearts of men truly truly i say to you an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the son of god and those who hear shall live so again just like lazarus was physically raised up in an instant from the dead at the command of christ so too dead sinners are instantly saved when they truly hear the voice of the Son of God, right? Christ gives that command to, uh, to come out, and God, through Christ, gives that power to do so. Verse 26, For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. So again, because the Son is equal to the Father in nature, in power, in ability, because the Father has life in himself, so too the Son has life, eternal life. So again, it's another statement concerning the deity of Christ. 
Christ is not a created being. Christ is the eternal God. And because he's the eternal God, he's the possessor of eternal life. No person, no human being ever has the power to bring themselves into existence, right? We can't generate ourselves into existence. We can't call ourselves into existence. We can't give ourselves life on a physical level or on a spiritual level, right? We can't grant to ourselves life. Spiritually dead men can't do that. They can't come to life by something they do. They can't come to life uh, by some kind of religious ritual. They don't come to life through some kind of cleverness of the preacher or the teacher or by some kind of means of self-improvement. Spiritually dead individuals only come to life when Christ calls them out of death because, again, God alone, Christ alone, possesses that life. And he gives that life through through his Son to whomever he wills. Again, he's speaking about spiritual life, spiritual resurrection. Christ gives everlasting life, and in John 10 and 10 it says he gives abundant life. Now, he's not saying that everybody who hears with the ear only, the gospel is going to be, as the gospel is presented, going to be saved, but because those religious leaders have heard the truth and they've rejected it. He's saying only those who hear in the sense of saving faith and obedience to the gospel, they'll live. And they live through God who in his kindness, because he wakens them from the dead. He grants them everlasting life. One of the great pictures, at least in my mind, I like, is, uh, is the picture, and it's kind of an old concept, but in Ephesians 2, we're familiar with it in the modern version, but in, in the King James, the authorized version, it says, you hath he quickened. Right? Before we had the technology we have and how life comes together. And so the old, old people used to talk about life coming together as a quickening. Right? It just somehow comes, you know. And that's a tremendous picture because that's what it is. It's God quickening the dead. God bringing life when there was no life. So again, these verses before us, Jesus is just saying, look, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who are spiritually dead, those who are spiritually alive, right? Those who are, are, are spiritually alive, they have eternal life. And the only reason they have eternal life is that he is the one who's granted that life to them. He is the one, the only one who's powerful enough to impart life to those who are dead spiritually. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear uh, the voice uh, uh, shall, and those who hear uh, shall live. Again, it's spiritual regeneration. And again, he's saying, look, at the incarnation, redemption has entered into the world, right? Redemption has entered into the world through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The work of Christ, the presence of Christ, he is already beginning to make people spiritually alive. Again, he's telling this in the context of the religious leaders, right? He's speaking to the religious leaders that are in front of him and claiming that he has the power this very hour to give people spiritual life. And guess what? We've actually seen it already in our study. John 3, right? The end of John 3, John 3 and 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. The woman, uh, the conversation with the woman at the well, she sees her need of Christ. She comes there, she has no concern over spiritual things. She's not, she just come to get a drink and try to leave as fast as she can. And all of a sudden, Jesus enters a conversation with her, and there she sees her need of Christ. She sees what she didn't see before, and she sees that he's the one who possesses living water that she needs. And in a moment, remember, she's changed. And what does she do? She runs back to her village, and she has to tell everybody else. John 4 and, 20, uh, 4 and 42. And they who are saying to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Right? So people are believing in his presence. The religious leaders don't understand him. The religious leaders have blasphemed him. They've completely written him off. They don't listen to him. But people around him are starting to listen. 
They're starting to be saved. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. People are believing. Why? Because Jesus is giving to them the gift of eternal life. Now, somebody comes and asks the question, which is probably a good one. Well, what were they believing? What were people believing in the, in the chronological context of the story here? Because Jesus hasn't yet gone to the cross. Jesus certainly hasn't, been, uh, hasn't uh, died. He hasn't been resurrected uh, physically from the grave. What were they believing? Well, on, on, on people who list, uh, live on this side, the pre-cross, before the cross, they believe just like Abraham believed. What did Abraham believe? He believed everything God told him. That's what people who live before the cross believe. They believe everything that God tells them. Believing what God says to be true. Believing that God is holy, that he's righteous, uh, that uh, he is just, that they have offended him, that they are sinful, that they are desperately in need of a Savior. They need mercy and grace. They believe that God has sent his Son into the world to be that Savior. Right? That's what the Samaritans believed. Right? That's what the, at Sychar they believed, even though the cross hadn't happened. They believed those truths, and they believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Savior of the world. They believed everything that would have been revealed up to them at that point. Even though they didn't have the knowledge of the cross and the empty tomb, they believed what God said to be true, that they needed Christ, and he was the only means of salvation. The information that had been revealed to them at that point is what they took by faith. They listened to the word of God, and they believed that God would do a tremendous work of regeneration through his son. Now, when it says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is, he's not speaking of a literal hour. Okay, he's speaking of an era of time. He's speaking of a period of time. And you know that to be true from chapter 1, verse 12. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. As many as received him in this time of grace, this period of belief, right? An hour is coming and now is. That hour is this era of time, the era of grace. And there will come a day when the era of grace will run out and judgment will come. So while you have today, the time to believe, to repent and believe, today is the day of salvation, not tomorrow, because none of us knows if tomorrow comes. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear shall live. So again, Jesus is saying, look, regeneration has begun. Salvation is happening all around me. Men and women are receiving eternal life. Again, it's spiritual resurrection. That's what's happening at the present time. Those who are dead are spiritually coming to life but there's more to come there's going to be a physical resurrection so the process of spiritual regeneration spiritual re- uh, re- uh, uh, resurrection is happening but he's saying look there's going to come a physical resurrection and i can only just introduce it because there's just so much to uh, uh, consider in the remainder of the of the chapter so let me just introduce this look at verse 26 for just as the father has life in himself even so he gave to the son also to have life in himself Verse 27, he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Verse 28, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. So again, Jesus is saying, look, everybody who's died is coming out. Everybody who's died is coming out. They're coming out of the grave. Everyone who has been born into this world, listen, is eternal. Everybody who's been born made in the image of God, God's eternal. Everybody who's been born is going to live forever in one of two places. Now, believers, we realize that one day when our earthly bodies are over, when they stop working, when they're completely worn out, we're going to one day receive in the future a resurrection body that will last forever, and can I get an amen? Right? That's from the gray-haired people in the room. Aren't you glad we're not taking this pile of junk 
to the grave. We're getting a new body, untouched by sin. Philippians 3 and 20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Believers are, believers are confident that one day we're going to get a resurrected body. We're going to enjoy a new body, a resurrected body, a resurrection unto life, and a physical body that's in conformity to the body of his glory, a body that will be fit for the millennial kingdom, and a body that will work itself, will be able to uh, use all the way fitted for eternity future, right? In the new heavens and new earth. It's going to be quite the updated model that won't ever wear out. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice and shall come forth. Verse 29, those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. So again, the Bible teaches that believers are coming out of the grave, and the Bible teaches that unbelievers are coming out of the grave. They're going to experience a physical resurrection also. But those who have never repented, those who have never experienced spiritual resurrection in time, they're going to be raised, but they're going to be raised to face judgment. Judgment, but before the white throne. They're going to have uh, eternal resurrection bodies that are going to be suited for eternal punishment in the lake of fire, as it says in Revelation chapter 20. So that's what the Bible teaches. That's what Christ is proclaiming in the verses before us. Two resurrections. One unto life, one unto judgment. Someone objects and they say, well, I don't believe that. Well, go ahead, my friend. It is not a matter of what you believe to be true is the issue in the room. The issue in the room is what is true. The issue is what is true. And the choice that every person has to make is either to humble themselves, believe what God says to be true, the same God who sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, into the world because of his tremendous love for mankind, to stand in mankind's place, to be our Savior, your Savior, to, to be your Redeemer, to be your sin-bearer, so that men might come out of eternal punishment, that might, men might come out of the position of being under eternal condemnation. You either believe that to be true, or you reject it. You say, my wisdom is better than God's wisdom. I'm much smarter than the sovereign of the universe, and I'm going to tell you what reality is, and I'm not going to believe any of that nonsense. So you reject God's word, you reject the Savior, you reject mercy, you reject kindness and grace, you reject God's love, and then you take your chances as you face God in judgment. That's reality. That is the same reality as the fact of one out of one people die. That is reality. Why? Because God's word is true, and God's word tells us that. God has promised that there's going to be a resurrection of life and there's going to be a resurrection of judgment. And for those who have rejected God's mercy through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing remains, it says in the book of Hebrews, except the terrifying expectation of judgment. And that's what the next portion is all about. That's reality in the world. And reality in the world is, listen, once a man is born, he lives forever. I just said that. Once a man is born, he lives forever. That's why being a man or being a woman is such an important issue. And that's why Satan and all of his cohorts do everything they can to pervert man, the image of God, calls all kinds of perversions, all kinds of lies, like you're not divinely made, you're just some product of chance over billions of years, and you climbed out of some ooze and slime, and you're a product of accident. And the Bible says, no, 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 you're created in the image and the likeness of God, to the glory of God, to serve him, to worship him. He has a tremendous love upon you. The devil and his cohorts come. They do everything they can to play down or deny the dignity of mankind because their intent for you is to take you to the same place of eternal judgment that they're going. 
That's where we're at. They want you, Satan and his cohorts, his demons, want you to believe there's no God. They want you to believe there's no God. They want you to believe that Jesus is not the Christ. They want you to believe the lies that Jesus is not the Messiah, the Savior of the world, God come in the flesh, God who's come out of God's great mercy in order to redeem and save. Because I told you at the top of the hour, we're in a spiritual battle. That's what's going on around us. There is a war going on for men's hearts and souls, whether or not you realize it. And mankind's only defense is the word of God. What God has to say on the issue, what God says to be true. And it's the word of God that takes us to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who again is mankind's only hope. We have no hope apart from him. So again, stop putting your confidence in politicians and the political process. There's not a one of them who are telling you repent. Have you heard a one of them tell you to repent and trust Jesus Christ? I haven't heard a single one of them. I don't care what level of government. I haven't heard one of them stand up and proclaim that truth. And I'm proclaiming that truth to you, that without Jesus Christ, mankind has no hope. And politics and evil men have got us into the position we're at because they have rejected God's word. And to double down and think anybody's going to save us from that group of people is nonsense. They need to repent. They need to come to the knowledge of the truth for their own eternal soul. You can have power in time, but ultimately, my friends, you don't have eternal power. There's only one who has eternal power, and he said he's not going to share his glory with another. The sovereign king of kings is going to come back and set everything right, and there is no justice in this world until the just one comes and restores order. Our only defense in the meantime is to turn to God, to the word of God, trust him, trust Jesus Christ. Trust the one who's in his kindness has revealed these truths to us to take us to his son because he's indeed who he claimed to be. God come in the flesh. He desires to see men saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. But judgment's coming. Verse 27 says, He, God the Father, gave him, God the Son, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now the Son of Man is a favorite Old Testament designation of Christ. It goes back to Daniel chapter 7. Again, it just talks to the fact that he's God. He is God come in the flesh, the one who has glory and dominion and a kingdom, and all the peoples are going to bow down before him. That's who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ will bring ultimate judgment upon all of mankind. Now again, Christ says, look, I have the power to raise the dead. People who believe will repent and come to eternal life. Those who don't will face me in judgment. They'll face me in judgment. Two resurrections. The question of the hour was the same question I asked last week. Who do you think Jesus is? What are you going to do with him? Because everybody has to deal with the person of Jesus Christ. Second question is, are you ready to face death? We're all worried about Wednesday. What happens on Wednesday? How about what happens this afternoon? How many of you think you're going to get in your car, drive home, and everything's going to be fine? Might be. Might not be. Most people don't plan on getting in accidents. I'm going to get in my car and have a purpose on the way home and make sure I kill myself and everybody with me. Nobody plans those kind of things. But we think crazy. We presume upon God that we have more time than we may have. And again, for those of you who are listening to me either in the room or listening to me on the live stream who've heard over and over again that you need to repent and place your faith in the Savior and you don't do that, you'll bear the punishment of your own rejection of God because that's a decision you made. You rejected the truth. You rejected mercy, certainty of death, certainty of judgment. You're going to have to deal with the person of Jesus Christ. All of us do. For those of us who have repented because of the mercy and the grace, the kindness of God, he's regenerated us. We bow before him in humble praise and thank him.
We love him, we adore him, and we can't wait to tell other people about him because we know he's the only answer to mankind's problems. Amen? Our Father and our God, it's all about you. It's tremendous, tremendous truth. All about your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that your word promises that there's life for those who repent, eternal judgment for those who fail to fall down before the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be wise. Help us to be compassionate. Help us to be truthful. Help us to be a help to those around us who are caught up in Satan's lies. Help us to maintain our fidelity to your word, to your truth, and find our hope in your word and in Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.